This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program, I'm talking to a trio of creators who have worked on popular retro anthologies such as 2000 AD, Crisis, and Revolver. In the second half of today's show, in a Q&A which was recorded at the Graphic Brighton Conference and Festival in 2018, you'll hear my discussion with cartoonists Hunt Emerson and Julie Hollings talking about their work together on such titles as Outrageous Tales from the Old Testament, and on individual strips such as Max Cillian and Beryl the Bitch. However, to start off with, I'm talking to comics editor and writer Steve McManus. McManus is best known in British comics circles for being the editor of 2000 AD, shepherding the title from the 1970s into the 1980s, and commissioning some of the best-known strips that have been featured in the anthology over the years, as well as seeing the first work published by the likes of Alan Moore. In recent years, Steve wrote his autobiography, The Mighty One, My Life Inside the Nerve Center, which tells tales of his time editing 2000 AD and companion titles, and more recently the novel The Sheer Glam Conspiracy, which fictionalizes some of the more outrageous tales that didn't go into the autobiography. At the back of the Sheer Glam Conspiracy, Steve wrote the first installments of new strips featured in a fictional retro anthology called Blazer, which is now actually seeing print through a Kickstarter. So in my Zoom call with the writer and editor, I'm talking to Steve about all of these aspects of his career and what hopes he has for the future of Blazer and other titles. Thanks for agreeing to do this interview. You'd been on my list for a while of people to interview, and I thought with the blazer kickstarter going on at the moment it couldn't hurt to help promote yeah. that but it seems to be doing Thank very you. well anyway well yeah i'm uh, we seem to have 250 backers have generated pledges to the value of over five thousand pounds yeah that's fantastic so, um, yeah yeah but it um to be fair i think it's quite a good product <laughs> even if i say so myself mm. um yeah so uh, but I can't wait for it to be printed and see, <laughs> see, 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 see how people react to it in the in the flesh kind of thing. Yeah. Well, two of the the strips that are being included in the um, digital version have previously been printed in the seventy seven. Was that kind of you dipping your toes back into writing comics? Uh, no, not really, because I wrote all the scripts um, at the back of the book that um, kind of generated this whole thing, that book being the um, novel about a fictional British comics publishing company. Um, I I mean, uh, so when Ben Carlos rang me from the 77, um, I think perhaps from his point of view, it was dipping the toe in to see uh, what reaction we could get. And then pretty soon he decided that we should stop putting the strips in the 77 and just whack them into Mm. what they were meant to be in the first place uh blazer Mm. so um uh but i mean (laughs) i mean in one sense you're right that that was the first 
piece of comic strip writing I'd done for, for many, many years. Yeah. Huh. So it was a dip, a, a cautious toe in the water. Yeah. Mm. And as you mentioned, um, uh, Blazer was kind of mooted as a, a fictionalized version of existing comics in your novel, uh, The Sheer Glam Conspiracy. Um, but certainly the existence of the 77 and uh, Pat Mills is doing a similar product, um, Space Warp, I think it's called. Um, yes. It shows that there's a real market at the moment for these anthologies that kind of hark back to the 70s to kind of look at what was being published back then, like 2000 AD, like Valiant, like Battle, and try and recreate those kind of stories for a new audience. Yes, I, I, I couldn't agree more. There's um, a wave of nostalgia going around. <laughs> um, um, I think uh, it, it wouldn't be unfair to say that that market is people who used to buy those comics in their youth. So they are now in their 50s, let's say. And um, well, you know, what better time to sort of... Uh, seek sanctuary in, in one's youth and now during this pandemic mm. um, I've been thinking about Blazer actually and in a sense I think in a, in, in a real world um, it's probably if action hadn't been cancelled and uh, John Sanders had asked for another title quickly <laughs> to kind of hug the shelves away from DC Thompson um, but Blazer would have been the next step in that progression from um, battle uh, through. Um, and that's why um, it's it's just ever so slightly one step on from action in the sense that it has a female sub-editor at least. Mm. Um, whereas action had me as the, you know, the action man. Um Blazer, the comic at any rate that you're going to see has a, a girl as the uh, sub-editor welcoming the boys and I think that's probably what Pat would have done anyway if he had been asked to launch a successor to action because actually the very early days of 2000 AD Pat had a, a girl sub-editor anyway mm. uh, Deirdre Vine I think her name was so um I, I, do, I think it's quite um, historically accurate, even though it never <laughs> came to pass in history. Yeah. And in terms of writing these stories, um, I guess when they were published in the novel, it was just to give a flavour of the kind of stories that were going on back then. But now that they're being re realised as a comic... Um, is it nice to see them in the format that, you know, kind of harks back to the strips that made you famous? Yes. I, 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 well, I, I've seen some, most of the artwork and it is um, exactly how you would want <laughs> it. So it's, it, it, it is, um, or the only difference I think is that we've got one story is in six pages of color. Mm. Whereas in the old days you could only have the center spread interior anyway as color um but um coming back to the book i mean it was it made it was so easy to have one central character to take them through all the different offices mm. as she was being a kind of intern and um as i got to each different comic i thought well we'd better have some stories 
but you know she can be subbing or <laughs> reading and stuff um so actually aside from the stories at the back of the book there are sort of quite a few unwritten scripts um for example in the the girls comic patsy mm. there's a very popular strip called saints the sinners which is basically lord of the rings uh, between two girls hockey teams you know as you probably know so um uh, the whole thing is kind of like i get muddled now which is real <laughs> and which is fictional in fact the whole thing's fiction so <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, somewhat. yeah. Um, mm. Well, I, I've read uh, The Collector, which was published in um, the 77 issue two, um, and that ends on a cliffhanger, and presumably, you know, a lot of these strips will do as well. Um, since this first issue seems to be doing very well, would you like to continue with a second instalment where all the stories continue? Well, I would, yes. It'd be great, because <laughs> all my... <laughs> All I'd have to do is write the script, so that wouldn't be too hard. But the actual logistics of um, artists and, um, you know, I, I did joke to Ben, the publisher, that can't we go weekly now? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Ben uh, of the 77 and his team um, might be able to kind of get their heads around uh, a second issue mm. um but what would be in that i don't know um uh you're right though they've, they've all got cliffhangers and <laughs> <laughs> that paul in the collector the, uh, the the young reporter is stuck in the mind of adolf hitler and uh, i think it would be it wouldn't be fair to leave her there but on the other hand it is only a comic as jack legrand used to say <laughs> <laughs> um so now that the the 77 is around and and blazer has been created it's in a a world you know in, in 2021 where kind of adventure stories for um young readers are much thinner on the ground than they were in 1977 there's 2000 ad and judge dread magazine are thankfully still continuing and there's also the phoenix um but apart from these projects that are sort of designed for a nostalgic audience there's not a lot out there um would you like to see a comic like blazer back on the newsstands you know it does seem that there is an audience for it yeah i, yeah, I think everyone would um but as you know to get a, a magazine on the shelves of a smiths or whoever you have to pay twenty thousand pounds just oh. for the privilege <laughs> right um so that the uh i don't think the, uh, the the economics of it work out um i think mark miller tried that didn't he with his mm. title through titan and he was astounded when they told him that you know you had to pay to get your product on the shelf um so i guess it's going to be more of a pop-up kind of affair mm. um for, for people um and maybe some I've seen quite a few young kids anyway at conventions, so maybe they'll get the habit mm. and kind of understand that um, it's more of a kind of one-shot um, environment, but they'll still have their artists they would follow and their stories they'd like. So uh, probably it's going to be that kind of um, interaction. Mm. And um, unless some millionaire wants to 
pay twenty thousand pounds. <laughs> but the, the the color price would have to be about five quid, and kind of defeats the object of your seven p yeah. nightmare, <laughs> as the sun called action. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you worked on various comics in the nineteen seventies. You worked on Valiant. Uh, you worked on Action. You went to become the editor of 2000 AD. Were you intending to become a writer and an editor in comics or was it an industry that you sort of found your way into and then relentlessly got promoted? <laughs> yeah, yeah, found my way in. Um, I actually wanted to, I wanted to work in magazines and mm. I, I thought, well, football would suit me. There's quite a few football magazines or even a, um, yeah, a newspaper, but um, the, 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 I applied for a job on a, a magazine called um, Shoot, hmm. and they turned me down. But as I was leaving the building, a guy said, "Well, there is a job going on the comics. You know, ha ha. If you want to, um, you know, go so low in his opinion." So that's how I kind of stumbled into comics. Um, and then I was enjoying the editorial and it really, it was um, Pat Mills who encouraged me to become a scripter. Mm. Um, I think I'd been on a, a, a course that uh, was being run and he'd read some stuff I wrote. And um, before I knew it, I was writing um, stuff for action comic uh, Namely, The Running Man, which was a fugitive ripoff. No, well, inspired book. <laughs> and um, Sports Not for Losers. <laughs> it's quite fun. Um, so, I never really, to answer your question, had the intention of being a comic strip writer. Mm. At the end of the day, I found editing was more or less taking up all my energy. And um, so it was best to kind of step away from writing. Um, because I'm, I'm better at prose to tell you the truth okay. mm. <laughs> I can knock out a first episode because anyone can do that you know because you just as you say leave it on a cliffhanger and walk away but <laughs> developing, developing that can, uh, I don't have a, the merest hint of the skills that Wagner Mills or Garth Ennis mm. command to kind of take a story on a journey mm. yeah yeah <laughs> Well, I suppose if Blazer continues, you could always hand uh, the cliffhangers to new writers and say, this is how it started. Where do you want to go with this? What a great idea. I, I agree with you entirely. That would be fab. Um, I did ask um, Alan Hebden if he'd like to take over one of the stories, but <laughs> he said he doesn't like writing other people's <laughs> stuff. And then the next day he'd come up with six stories for a girl's comic um <laughs> on his own <laughs> so um so he, he's obviously got some ideas that he wants to get out there mm. um yeah yeah but yeah no to answer your question i think it'd be fab and what a great chance for young people to i mean actually i mean in a way that was part of the uh, the come on at the back of the shake man conspiracy is a note from me saying to putative artists you know here's some scripts if you want to have a go by all means you know don't worry about me mm. and, and put them on the internet um 
But I never said to any writer as well, what would you do with this, as you say, in the next episode? Maybe I should. Mm. Um, maybe I should have said that. <laughs> maybe I still could, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. We could have a competition. We could have a competition. I wonder what the prize would be. So tell me a bit about yourself. How, how come you're kind of doing what you're doing? Um, well, I... I probably actually can credit you in terms of getting me into comics. I, I read 2000 AD. I started around issue 500 and have read every wow. issue since um, and then bought the uh, the Titan reprints of Judge Dredd that kind of collected the stuff that I hadn't read and then got into American comics and, yeah, loved the medium ever since. It's interesting because five, Prog 500 was my the one I consider my last prog ah. <laughs> um as described in my memoir about being on 2000 AD um I think you missed some good thrills then because it could go down a bit after that <laughs> uh, whilst the new team struggled to cope with the fact that all the good writers and artists had decamped for America mm. and um every seven days you have to put 32 pages to the printer and I think it was hard for them to uh, eventually they steadied the ship and you had uh, Slane, um, Zenith and some cracking Judge Dreads. Uh, Strong Tim Dog was always there for them. Mm. Um, but uh, I think it was a lot harder for them to make the comic each week than it was for me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, um, but there you go. But certainly, I mean, that period when uh, you were editing it, it's the time that really sort of made 2000 AD into sort of a national institution, you know, the first strips by the likes of Alan Moore and Pete Milligan. Um, did you feel that there was something very special going on that, you know, towards the end of your tenure, you were a publishing, um, you were editing a comic that was kind of heads and shoulders uh, above everything else that was on the newsstand and indeed perhaps had been over the previous decade. Yes. Uh, it was, it, it, it was a, a dawning, you know, a dawning of there's something in the air to mm. quote from the clap Newman. I think <laughs> it, it was, it was, um, I think it was from the music industry that one began to get the first feedback, um, like Hank Wankford and Lemmy to find out that these guys were reading it was a kind of, Oh, well, that's pretty cool. Um, and then, when the media started to feed off this, you really did begin to ah, oh, we've we've gone beyond a child's comic. We are to quote that awful term. Well, we weren't a brand then, but we were certainly a cult. Mm. And it kind of went mainstream when people like Valerie Singleton started coming up to the office to in the, interview us for. <laughs> At the time, she was doing the money program. Mm. And then we had the Cube down from Newcastle, that kind of hipster program. They came all the way down to interview us. Um, and that's when, yeah, it was. Um, and of course, I suppose the culmination was madness, making a record about Judge Dredd. <laughs> um, and, and us putting that on the, uh, announcing that in the comic. Mm. Yeah, so it was a slow process, but then suddenly the penny dropped mm. for all the galactic growth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and uh, yeah it was quite a nice feeling for everyone I'm sure and those kinds of writers and artists who started their careers um, in 2000 AD when you were editing it was it that they were just in the unsolicited um, submission slash pile along with everyone else and you saw something special in their work that kind of stood out amongst the crowd yeah the uh, we did have a a pile of unsolicited scripts arriving each day and the um it, it was the sub editor's job to go through those and uh at the time uh, alan grant uh was working with me and he it was he who came across a submission from alan moore although i think alan moore had been doing a bit for um um a dead skins title whose name escapes me a warrior um, a warrior yeah um but alan grant wrote alan moore <laughs> a long letter of encouragement and um that's how alan moore came aboard uh, pete milligan uh was friends with brendan mccarthy and brett ewins and that he would just drop by the office and gradually got to know him and read his his he would hand you his future shock idea so that was his route in uh grant morrison um just magicked himself up to the 20th floor um because <laughs> there was a very hard building to get into at that time with all the bombings going on mm. but somehow grant did it and um, we knew his name so that's how he and he showed initiative <laughs> like he was in the sas or something <laughs> we couldn't turn him down um obviously Mills and Wagner were the originators of the comic anyway mm. along with Terry Finley Day so they were established writers in their own right mm. um, and then Garth Ennis was a, a sub was someone chosen from the submissions pile you're right um, there's a few others but yeah so it was mainly yeah people proposing themselves and i would have to say getting lucky mm. um, because it was it's quite a busy job anyway getting 32 pages of comics ready each week mm. without then at the same time trying to help someone rise to the top in their own aspirations their career mm. aspirations um does that kind of give you a hint of yeah. what, what was going on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm. Um, and what was your sort of day-to-day -day experience like as an editor back then? Was it sort of giving story notes, chivying up writers and artists to meet deadlines, those sort of things? Yeah. The more I look back on it, um, it was a, a kind of like a production job mm. where you had a schedule from the printer and you worked back from the day you had to send in the issue to a starting point where you would commission the script that would eventually turn into the artwork that would turn into the lettered artwork that would be proofread and printed um so that was the the, the modus operandi the, the the whole thing so within that uh, um there were a lot of well who's going to draw this mm. um you know 
artist A is ill today. We need <laughs> to find someone. Um, or who's going to write this because uh, we want a war story. You know, we haven't got a war story. Who do we think amongst our stable of writers that would be good at that? Or more often than not, no, no Alex, it would be um, proposals from the writers themselves mm-hmm. saying, I've got this story. Pat Mills would say, I've got this story about a Celtic barbarian. <laughs> or John Wagner would, and Alan Grant would say, we want to do... Um, or sometimes we'd say, we'd always put our heads together and say, well, Massimo Bernardinelli hasn't got anything to draw. <laughs> What's he good at? And you know, He's good at everything except humans. So <laughs> Pat and John <laughs> came up with Ace Trucking Company, which is... One of my favourites, mm. um, as it provided some light-hearted humour um, to what could have sometimes been some quite grim issues. Mm. Um, so I, I put Ace Trucking at the front of the comic just to uh, defray any criticism from a passing parent who would <laughs> I'd heard about this terrible comic. But as soon as they saw this crazy artwork, they put it down not knowing that three stories in, <laughs> there was someone being burnt at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that it was basically all hands to the pump and um, all about getting the scripts and out to artists. Mm. Once you got the scripts out to the artists, then there was a, you knew that at some point that art would come back. Um, and you could take a letter and off to the printer. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm doing myself down a bit by making it sound like a production job, but um, someone had to organise the whole thing. Mm. And there was enough creative talent contributing. One didn't have to sort of ring up John Wagner and go, I'm not sure Judge Dredd should do that, John, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or ring up Pat Mills and said, mm, Pat, I, I don't like that fifth page. Can you rewrite it? Mm. No. no. <laughs> I don't need to work at all, I don't think. Mm. But, you know, what you said about um, perhaps we could do with a war strip or we could do with more humour, I guess when you're editing an anthology, you're always aware of having a lineup of strips that kind of complement each other. And so looking ahead from month to month, was it the case of thinking, oh, we could do with some lighter strips at this point, we could do with some more sort of space opera, those sort of decisions as the comic went on? Yes, exactly. And that was quite, I mean, imagine yourself in that position. It's quite fun mm. to have that kind of power to say, <laughs> well, would that be the opportunity, say? Um, so, uh, and again, you're right, it was, although it was set in the, it was basically, wasn't it? perhaps still is an anthology set in the kind of the future. It's not science fiction so much as future cop, future warrior, mm. future bounty hunter. So yes, when one war story ended, it was it would have been crazy not to have an, another war story lined up to take its place. Um, so in, in 2000, for example, we... Um, we had the VCs. I think that was the first story, the uh, vacuum cleaners, which Mike McMahon did the first episode for. Mm. Then when that ended, we 
brought in Road Trooper, I think. And um, the same would be for space strips, I guess. When Dan Dare ended, you had to find someone else who would be knocking around the galaxy <laughs> having adventures. Um, yeah, so that, that was quite fun, looking at and trying to second guess when it would be wanted. Mm. Um, very much a jigsaw at times. Mm. Uh, um, the, product, the, the actual, the real production department actually ringing you up at your desk saying, where's, where's, where's the issue? The printer wants to go to press, where's the issue? You know. <laughs> thinking they were doing a great job of harassing you. <laughs> God. <laughs> so we managed to keep ourselves sane by going to the pub each night for at least a couple of drinks. <laughs> you you couldn't not leave that office and get on a tube home. You had to have a, a midway point. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd bring all the angst of the office back to your home situation, which wouldn't have worked at all well. Mm. But in, by going to the pub, you could just say talk to other people on other comics actually which was quite fun so mm. there was um the, the, the guys who were setting up scream which didn't last that long but there was the, the guys working on battle um and then um all the humor comics of course um and at the same time quite a few of the girls magazines oh boy mates photo love um it, everyone would be in the pub <laughs> right about 5 30 mm. um just kind of decompressing i think is the word um and and trying out these newfangled computer games that <laughs> <had> just appeared <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah 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 it's all in the book yes. it's both books are kind of uh, happy in some, in many ways, remembrances, nostalgia for that time. Mm. Uh, Bill Bryson, in his book, um, The Something Kid, The Thunderbolt Kid, have mm. you read that? No, I haven't. No. That's his, The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, which is was his alter ego growing up. Mm. But he, in, there's one bit in that book where he says he would give anything, anything, and this is quite a statement, in the world to be able to go back to the time when he was about eight years old and visiting his dad in his dad's newspaper office. Um, and that's, you know, that's a hell of a lot of nostalgia mm. in his head, but I kind of have a, a modicum of that. Mm. Um, so it's quite fun revisiting the 1970s in either the real case or the fictional case. And, um, uh, sort of remembering what was going on at the time there from the uh, i think the the barden meinhof gang were mm. knocking about in london at the time so yeah yeah it's gone very quick alex i must say yeah. <laughs> well it, it's interesting that uh, the mighty one is obviously an autobiography while the sheer glam conspiracy is a fictionalized a, a fictionalized version of those times is it that some of the stories you wanted to include in the first book would have been too scandalous, so you had to fictionalise them for the second one. <laughs> yeah, uh, pr uh, well, um, 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 the I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I couldn't possibly. You might say that I couldn't possibly comment, but the um, the characters in the Shigman, uh 
as you see a larger than life mm. characters um the almost cartoony characters but actually the people who i worked with at my young age of 21 were larger than life characters to my eyes so there's not much difference um um and some of the things that happened in in the shagman conspiracy the publisher um, has his hair cut by a member of staff that's their job even though they <laughs> that's not what they're meant to do and in um in my time at fleetway the john sanders who's got his own book out he used to have his hair cut by a member of staff um so that yeah um but yeah so that's one instance of a something <laughs> getting across mm, indeed <laughs> After you, uh, after you left 2000 AD, you went on to edit uh, Judge Dredd magazine and Crisis. Um, both of those titles, I guess, coincided with an idea that the, the graphic novel was on the rise and more adults were buying comics. And certainly both of those titles seemed to be not only um, anthologies that told stories for an older audience, but also took advantage of the format to tell stories that actually were deeper and had sort of more emotional and political resonance to them. Yeah, well, as you said earlier, um, comics had become kind of hip, um, mm. if that's the word. Um, and um, we had The Dark Knight, you had Mouse, you had kind of um, uh, those sort of titles. And as, as far as the magazine went, it was, a, it was obvious that Dread could support his own title um with some slightly older content uh, but uh, the real two that were crisis and revolver which mm -hmm. we thought um could be the next step on from the weekly cliffhanger model to as you say something more um uh maybe well, certainly more funky, but also uh, more exploratory. Mm -hmm. um, so we tried that. Um, but um, the British market didn't really, the distribution couldn't support it. Whereas if we'd been in America with um, direct sale, I think some of the stories could have stood up quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, Zenith, for example, I'm sure. Um, and even... Um, yeah, but it, it was not to be. Mm. It was not to be. Um, I think Revolver, they told me, lost half a million pounds. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. No, no wonder Robert Maxwell stole my pension then because he had to get his money back, the bastard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it does feel that um, finally some of those strips that were in crisis are getting the audience that they deserved because I remember at the time... Um, there were reprints of New Statesman and the first book of Third World War. And it's now taken another 30 years for the second book, Third World War, to come out. So hopefully now uh, readers who are yes. buying these collected yes. editions might be able to find out how the story continued. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I, I, I think Crisis stands up quite well, mm. um, looking back at it. Uh, there were some great one-off stories in there. 
and it, in that sense it did allow new talent to have a go um as did revolver but i mean crisis was a um, a starting point for mark miller um and john smith um and sean phillips duncan figueredo all found work on crisis so um, i'd like to see um a collection of the crisis one-off stories mm. um, where people were talking about their experience of life um really kind of the true tales weren't they to some extent and as you say because uh, my favorite is new statesman um and i've never understood why that hasn't become a perennial kind of seller mm. as a collection because it's um super Tim Becky artwork mm. like, uh, it's a nice idea and you know if you, if you like John Smith's method of storytelling you don't need to look any further than <laughs> New Statesman uh, I thought he did a good job of it um so yeah it's, it's good as you say to see some of this stuff being revisited because uh, Rebellion are doing a huge amount of that, mm. aren't they, with the treasury um, stuff. So they're, they're, they're going right back into the IPC archive um, stuff from Buster. And um, we haven't even spoken about the war, mm. um, all the war stuff. Uh, Darkest Mob, I've got a copy of Darkest Mob here. Um, and um, the, the artwork, I mean, Mike Weston, wow, you know. Mm. It's great that we've got Mike's son, Pete Weston, in Mesa drawing a strip. Ah, I hadn't made the connection. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 Mike's yeah, Peter Weston. He he he's about my age actually. That's I'm sixty eight. I think Pete's about sixty five or something. Um, but he, I've worked with Pete, and we've created a strip together, and. Um, He's found it fascinating because he's never drawn comics before. He's seen his dad mm. <laughs> work from morning till night as growing up. But Pete has never, and he, he said it so he understands now what, how much of a, to be an artist is a real, you have to love it because <laughs> it's hard work, um, he says, from the drawing board. Mm. So, yeah, look out for his strip. It's really good. Yeah, will do. Well, so you spoke about um, New Statesman and you spoke about some of the one-offs in Crisis. Are there any other strips on any of the titles that you've worked on that you think um, could do with being reprinted and found by a new audience? Uh, oh, um, gosh, that, that, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, there's probably stuff that was in not Valiant, but Lion comic mm. um, that would stand up well. I think there was a character called Maxwell Hawk, who was a detective. Uh, quite, it was played quite straight. Yeah, Maxwell Hawk. But you no, know, my brain stopped. I can't think. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> I'll email you if I can think of stuff. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big canvas, that, isn't it? Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, like I said, I'm glad to see that Blazer is doing well and hopefully uh, this will lead to either more strips that have been originated by you or that you have a hand in um, 
commissioning and it's great that uh, a whole new audience is finding out about your work through the reprints and through your novels and and projects like blazer super yeah i mean i uh, thank you for having me oh my pleasure cool for more info about blazer please go to kickstarter.com and search for blazer comic or 77 comic and if you'd like to find out more about the progress of the title there's also a facebook group you can join Steve McManus's books, The Mighty One, Inside the Nerve Centre, and The Sheer Glam Conspiracy, are available from all good bookshops and online retailers. If you're in a mind to help patronise such projects as Blazer, this month is Resonance FM's traditional annual fundraising month, helping raise monies for the station to pay for new equipment and such projects as the recent relocation of the station's radio antenna. This is a much-needed stream of revenue for the station, and if you enjoy such shows as Panel Borders, Sound Projector, Shoot the Breeze, Art Rocker, Calling All Pensioners, Fogcast, K-Pop Journey, and many more, then please go to resonancefm.com and click on the link marked Donate. In the second half of today's show, I'm talking to cartoonists Hunt Emerson and Julie Hollings, about their work on such titles as Hot Jazz and Revolver, and how these strips saw an interest in music, or not as the case may be, feeding into their work. Hunt and Julie also found themselves in the same anthology, Outrageous Tales from the Old Testament, published by Knockabout in the 80s, and this Q&A with the two cartoonists was recorded at Graphic Brighton, an annual festival mixing academic responses to comics and interviews with creators at various venues around the city of Brighton. This Q&A was recorded at the 2018 Graphic Brighton, which was held at the University of Sussex, as part of a two-day look at the connections between music and comics. My main comics work in music, well, I've done a lot of it, but uh, I did a, a character called Max Zillion, a jazz saxophone player, and... Um, it was published, uh, we collected all of the Maxillian stories together uh, last year, year before last, into this volume called Hot Jazz. But I was drawing them for, oh, 30-odd years, 35 years. In fact, Julie makes a, a cameo appearance in one of the stories. Um, Max was a, the, the, uh, the usual jazz player. He's always down on his luck. He always gets ripped off. And his saxophone alter ego is the brains of the outfit. And at the time, I didn't like jazz at all. Um, I had a girlfriend when I first started doing Max who was a saxophone player. And that was, I liked the suits and I liked the instruments, but I didn't like the music. But I did like drawing it. And that's the kind of way I was drawing it. Um, these days, I do like jazz. I've got wise at last. But, but um, 1980, I got involved with The Beat. This was my biggest music stuff. Um, who remembers The Beat? Yes, right. I was never into punk. I was a ska boy. And um, I did the, all their publicity, the, all the, the adverts and things. Um, I invented the Beat Girl in various forms, and she still keeps getting reinvented. That was um, based on a, a, an old photograph of a girl in Jamaica dancing with Prince Buster. And, uh, oh, the, the, there's three versions of the Beat going around. There's the, the, the Beat as such, which is Rankin Roger. Um, he leads that band. Uh, 
in America, Dave Wakeling's still doing the beat. They're called the English Beat over there. And the drummer Everett has his own version called Beat Goes Bang. And I've been doing work for all of these guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, amongst the whole organisation, the Beat's sort of family. I think I'm the only person who never fell out with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just recently finished this. This is Dave Wakeling's English Beat. Got this. It's a great album. I tell you, it is really good. Back to form. That was just uh, released about four or five weeks ago, actually. So that was my my latest work with them. It's ongoing. Um, it's going to be their fortieth anniversary next year, and I'm going to be roped in to do that as well. And uh, I'll be dealing with all six of them again, or five of them. Saxa died a couple of years ago, but I'll be dealing with all five of them, which is going to be. It was. The beat, I was the only person who knew how to hold a pencil when they first started, and they suddenly got some fame and needed somebody to do graphics, so I was dragged in. And um, they knew what they didn't want, which was my cartoon work, um, but they didn't know what they did want. <laughs> and I kept doing lots of designs and things, and they said, oh, that's vile, that's vile. And um, I think it's going to be the same sort of way with the 40th anniversary, although we're a bit closer to, to it now because all this... The designs have become settled now, but I had to sort of invent a new way of working, a new style of drawing to do them. But um, I've always been involved in music since I was a kid. Um, my brothers are musicians. My mother was a singer. My brothers are, one of them's a drummer and banjo player, and the other one plays guitars and bass and things. And um, I was in a band, well, from in th when I was 13, we were a skiffle group. Um, but we turned into quite a neat little mod band called Size 5. I did my first gig when I was 14. And uh, then we, we we got psychedelic. And I only ever drawn that this band once, a, a comic about them. And this is a frame of us being psychedelic with war paint and things. And we were awful. <laughs> but we could, we could, given the chance, we could play for three hours non-stop. We didn't often get the chance, though. <laughs> Then in 1980-ish, I, I had a band in Birmingham called the Tadpoles, which was an interesting band because it didn't have a drummer. It had a drum machine, but it was a very live group with two saxophones and bass and things, and the drum machine was played by the guy who was one of the singers. He used to play this drum machine like that. I was a guitar player. Um, I didn't sing, but uh, I, didn't, I, I was a singer in the other band because... Um, there was already too many guitarists in it. And then, up until fairly recently, I had a band in Birmingham called The Hound Dogs. And this was a party band that played R&B and rock and roll classics and country and things. And um, stopped doing that about five years ago, six years ago. The, the last gig we did was for my 60th birthday in 2012. And um, I basically, it was taking up too much of my time. The... Um, the recession had started to hit. I was running out of money, going broke. So I had to chuck the band up and um, concentrate on the job. Um, also, there was a certain amount of dad dancing starting to come into it. You know? <laughs> but I have to say that I haven't actually been overwhelmed by people saying, hey, man, you've got to get the band together again. <laughs> uh, I had my own record label for a little while. A friend of mine, a musical genius, a producer called Andrew Cowan, who sadly died two years ago, but we, we made some records, made some CDs, and um, 
I mean, I, I sang and played, lots of my friends sang and played. Andrew was the, the, the genius behind it. He made the music. And we, we had sprightly records. And we did a couple of singles, a couple of CD singles. That was Josephine, a John Otway song, and Seven Curses. And we did um, some compilation albums. We recorded other people. We used to do parties with uh, people who would play three songs, and that was it. And we had Pass the Parcel and Bingo and things like that. These days, I can't be asked with rock music anymore. It's too much of a hassle. I like jazz. I like sitting in a pub with a pint and having somebody play a horn at me. And the Birmingham Jazz Society or uh, club is, they had their 40th anniversary a couple of years ago. And I got employed by them to do 40 drawings, which was great because I got to go to lots of gigs. And um, I was drawing people in the audience, people in the society, and some of the bands. That was one of the bands, a guy called Gilad Atzman, who's an a, a Israeli exile, saxophone player, he's brilliant. And I've done some classics, Thelonious Monk, uh, Mingus, Lester Young, Dizzy Gillespie. There you are. <laughs> Tits and clits, actually. Let's start with tits and clits. Why not? Because <laughs> I am really, really unmusical, really bad at music, don't sing, don't do any kind of performance, totally tone deaf. But what I would take, and I, but I was very into punk, unlike Hunt, and what I take to music is the spirit of punk. And I think a lot of women in the 80s probably did at the time, which is what, like, you can do it, you can just get on with it. Um, fan scenes, I think that's probably the spirit that we took from it. Um, musical influences probably sound like Madonna and Cindy Lauper, I'm afraid. Um, and, and I suppose the link is a lot of my stuff's about relationships, and music's often about relationships, isn't it? It usually comes back to some kind of love story, something like that at the end of the day. Um, so a lot of myths about love, a lot of um, taking experiences and making them real. Um, I suppose one of the things I was known for in the 80s was Beryl the Bitch. So the other thing about the 80s is not just post-punk, but obviously it's the time of Thatcher, isn't it? Someone wants to describe Beryl the Bitch as just pure mean spirit. and She was kind of almost the epitome of some type of Thatcher. I wouldn't really call her a Thatcher, Thatcher figure, but there was something about her. She was just... Every time there was a choice, she always did the really vile thing or the really naff thing or the thing that was a little bit outrageous or, um, yeah, like putting holly down people's trousers and things. And sort of saying the unsayable, I guess, which is one thing that comics for me has always been about. Um, the type of comics I was into is about, saying, as I said, saying the unsayable. Um, Deadline. Oh, Hunt said to me, do you remember much about Deadline? I don't... Sorry? No, I don't remember much about Deadline. Um, of course, you've got Tank Girl there, another strong female heroine, and Beryl the Bitch was in there. Beryl the Bitch did go on to appear in the Sunday Correspondent, which anyone know? It's like a very short-lived... Um, Sunday newspaper in Scotland, um, but it was really very short-lived. And uh, as Hunt said, the recession came along early 90s and really kind of killed that off. And unfortunately killed off Revolver, which I'd worked on. And Revolver, I suppose, is... So I love doing Revolver. And it, but it's, I suppose it's the nearest thing that shows a musical influence. It's called Dire Streets. I mean, I hated Dire Streets. I epitomised everything I hate about music. Um, I would say. And it's about some students living together and they really didn't... I don't think they talked about music um, a lot, but when they did, it was usually to um, diss that kind of thing, old hippies as we thought of them, I'm afraid. 
lot of stuff around relationships. The irony of Dire Streets was when I was right when I was doing that, it was all about students sharing a home. I was actually at home pregnant with my first child, and far from living that uh, student life as uh, you could probably get, actually. But uh, never mind. I guess quite often I've taken things, and only a few years later you really understand and process them and do stuff with them. That was a book on that fine art book, yeah. So that was a piece of work I did. Was it Camden Art? I did a couple for them. One was on fine art, which was some, an illustration, which was quite interesting. So obviously that's completely different in that it's a brief and you're set to do it and you're not sort of creating your own storyline in the same way. <laughs> and Daddy Dearest, which is the one that appears in the Old Testament. Only set up, I don't know whether you remember, Hunt, to do one cartoon, but I ended up doing two. I think Daddy Dear was the one I was originally meant to do, but I also did the one about Jail and Cicero where she cuts off his head. And I actually prefer that. I was reading them and I actually much prefer that one. Well, there was a discussion earlier about the whole zines thing and zines being a kind of punk uh, aesthetic of that whole sort of handmade response to kind of DIY culture and rebelling against. And it did feel, um, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, uh, but it did feel like that those um, early comics, like women's comics, were very much embracing that punk aesthetic, particularly as, I guess, finding uh, the female voice in comics. Mm. Yeah, yes, I guess that's how it how it felt um, at the time. Doing things was quite different. So if you went to um, comic cons, it was always full of sci-fi fans and older blokes and things. And um, I suppose comics... I mean, I worked at Marvel Comics too. It was my first job. So I was looking, we were, that's where that lovely acorn green came from because um, the English side of... So the English arm of Marvel, I was an editor, we would take a lot of the American strips and reproduce and repackage them for an English audience. But we had some that were all our own. And I worked on some of the child's titles like that. But I suppose that's, a, apart from these, which um, <laughs> definitely you know, want to set the girls on, really. The, the whole thing of Marvel superheroes, I guess what I wanted to do was always the antithesis of that. Mm. Always absolutely the opposite of it. But just going back to those, uh, you know, the, the kind of early feminist comics, what, what was your way in? How did you, you know, start doing comics to start off with? Um, oh God, I don't know whether I remember. I think I'd come <laughs> along to some kind of comics event. That yeah. I met Tony and Carol from Knockabout. Mm. Um, that's how I did the Old Testament. I guess I just came along to things like this and began to... Mm. I was at university at the time and beginning to draw and... Probably the Westminster Hall. Yeah, they used to be regular, didn't they? Yeah. There were mm. sort of some kind of regular events. Um, that was where um, Paul Gravette first started doing yeah. fast fiction. And the um, all the, the, the kind of handmade comics, because it was still uh, early photocopies. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's this... There's this period between... In the old days, (laughs) if you wanted to get something published, you had to find somebody who had a printing machine, uh, which meant finding a publisher, which meant printing 1,000 or 2,000 magazines, and you sold 30 of them, and the rest sat under your bed for the rest of your life. But then, as photocopying started to come in, people were able to make their own comics and do them in limited numbers. And they may have been rough and ready, but they they were instant, and I think that's where... People like you started yes, finding a way in. So, I mean, I, when I go and see bands, I lived in Beckers, I used to go to Aylesbury Friars, and it was always the first in the listings, an enemy. But whenever you went to a gig, there would be somebody with a bunch of fanzines be giving them out. I think that's where, and as you say, it's bizarre to think of this world of social media, but a photocopy was a big deal. Yeah. You know, we were used to band machines, which I suspect nobody 
you know, Google it. Um, but the connection is new technology. Yes, A cheap yes, way of distributing. Yes, yes it was. And it was also this sense you could do it. You didn't have to wait for other people to make it happen mm. um, because this, this stuff made it very easy. And Hunt, I mean, you came out of the Birmingham Arts now? Yes, and we were kind of at that point where um, you still needed to find somebody with a printing machine and so on. And we were the people with the printing machine because mm. the, the Arts Lab was a... a, a multimedia arts centre place in Birmingham and we had a, a print shop basically to produce the Arts Lab's programmes and things and I, I got a job there first of all working the machine which I was hopeless at and then working on layout and design and darkroom stuff and basically we hijacked it and started publishing comics so we were still having to publish lots of them because the, the mechanics of the the economics and mechanics of the industry then was like that. But we were in charge of what was done, uh, rather than having to go through somebody who had a lot of money who was prepared to invest in what we were doing. We were able to do it. Um, the Arts Council paid for it, although they didn't really know it at the time. <laughs> um, but it did mean that we were kind of... Um, we were able to give space to lots of people who otherwise weren't getting their work into print. Uh, and then shortly after that, photocopies started becoming more, more better, basically, and people were able to take over for themselves and get in, and and the whole thing grew from there. And the whole independent comic scene came not not from the arts lab, but that was part of it. You know, it was, it was a an ongoing thing. They were doing the same thing in Newcastle, Angus Angus Mackay. Mackay oh, okay. They had a printing machine, and they were sort of doing the same kind of thing as we were. Mm. Not so successfully. They were trying to print on chip paper. Because <laughs> yeah. I always think of him as being a wonderful colorist. Yeah. He must have been really reacting against he that was. primitive yeah. technology. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, thinking of kind of intersections with, in inverted commas, mainstream culture. I mean, you know, we mentioned that you contributed to both Deadline and uh, Revolver, which were ostensibly kind of music-themed collections. Yes. The strips that you contributed to both of those, Beryl the Bitch and Dire Straits, were you asked to take on any kind of musicality with those comics? Or was oh, it just that you had I mean, Beryl, got a shoe in the door? Yeah, no, Beryl the Bitch, they just liked, I think. Right, OK. I think they just liked it. I don't remember there being any musical brief. I don't know whether you do. No. But um, I, know, I knew Beryl that with Revolver, great. there was a, a loose musical theme. And um, Dire Streets is the title of the... Of yeah. the the strip is kind of homage to that, but it was really about the kind of soap opera of being a student sharing a sharing a house, and as I said, the relationship ups, downs, and the you know, general grot and vileness of sharing houses at times, mm. and student life and what it's like. So I don't don't remember consciously putting a lot of music into it. It was difficult to do comics about music because mm. you always ran into copyright problems with yeah. the words. Do you remember Heartbreak Soup? Yes, yes, I do. Which yeah. was a, a, a comic that was supposedly based on music and what you got was the title of a song but you weren't allowed to use the words of the song you just had to invent a story that went with the title and that was as close as it got to the music but certainly some of those magazines that you include with included and they seem very blokey you know it's all about i mean music in particular seems to be uh, celebrated as a kind of a guy culture certainly in the way that it's presented in certain magazines how were your rea- interactions with the rest of the staff? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they were absolutely fine. I think okay, if you're cool. an artist, you're an artist, aren't yeah. you? And you're kind of you're commissioned. I hope you're sort of treated on equal grounds. I don't remember it being mm. um, being an issue particularly. 
Yeah. Beryl was always popular. Yeah. yeah. And then one project uh, that you both kind of collaborated on, uh, at least appeared side by side, was Outrageous Tales mm. from the Old Testament. Mm. You know, the Bible is literally the most mainstream novel in uh, <laughs> Western culture, but <laughs> when you present it in comics, all of a sudden it becomes extreme. <laughs> yeah. The Old about... Testament, particularly the Old, yeah. Old Testament, is very extreme, though, if you read it. Yeah. I mean, eye for an eye. I mean, it's, it's you know, some things that says about gay people, etc. I mean, it's pretty outrageous, really. Mm. Yes, uh, the one I did with Alan Moore about Leviticus basically went through all of the... Um, all of the prohibitions in Leviticus. And uh, when you see them all laid out like that, it's just, just insane. Really. <laughs> and there's people who still believe it and they still base their lives and try to impose it onto the rest of us. That, you know, it says in the Bible that. I mean, Knockabout were a publisher who, whose publications had previously been seized by customs mm. and being banned. <laughs> did, did this one run into any yes. problems <laughs> that you're allowed to talk about? Ah, I can't <laughs> remember. There was, no, there was nothing legal about it. Nothing legal came up. But um, it did get quite a lot of newspaper coverage at the time. Of, um, God blimey, can you believe it? Now it's a, a, a dirty comic version of the Bible, which it wasn't really. Um, we never got actually censored for it, but there was a lot of controversy at the time. It was, it was a difficult title. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting that you both kind of have indie roots, you know, really an indie sensibility doing things that are pushing against the mainstream. But now, Hunt, you, or the recent, recent years, have illustrated uh, the Beano. Recent years, uh, 15 years. 15, 15 years. Yes, oh, now I feel old. Um, and, and Julie, you were talking about working for Marvel Comics. So what was it like when you were doing very mainstream comics? Um... I don't know. I don't know. I think there's things. I mean, I've always had to have a day job. I've always had mm. to pay the mortgage, I suppose. And even now, I work in PR and marketing rather than com- mm. comics. Um, um, and actually, it's really useful. I think it's quite useful, though, to have. For me, it was always really useful to have a day job because that's where I got a lot of my ideas. And also, I think when you see something like Marvel comics, to me, it was so extreme. There's no way I was ever going to produce comics like that. But I think working with them and just and actually the. The stuff used to come in from America, the comic strips, the superhero stuff, in the films, you know, the film that would make up printing plates, and you'd have this job of, um, with a scalpel, scraping off bits that weren't quite... So we're very close to this very physical thing with the lettering on it. I, I suspect it must have absorbed something about the way a comic strip is put together, language, etc., and, and drawing, because it's so sort of... I don't know, physically quite close to these things, but it wasn't subject matter mm. that particularly attracted me, but it was quite interesting. It was interesting, and then I used to do the kids' stuff, like the Get Along Gang, the Care Bears. <laughs> and we had this big Bible, it was called the Bible, and it <laughs> it told you everything a Care Bear would say. <laughs> if you could see an emotion, it would be a Care Bear, apparently. <laughs> and all the colours they could be. And the Pantone colours and all of that. So you worked very, very, you know, Marvel is a very strong brand. You worked a very strong um, brand, branding guidelines. You, you had to be very careful. Okay. Get along, gang, a bit more freedom. I used to write some, I used to write some of the copy. And we, I remember I was being really desperate for an idea one week on the Get Along. I don't suppose anyone remembers the Get Along Gang. They were kind of, they weren't as big as the Care Bears. Um, but we had one issue, we were really desperate. Hooray for cheese, you know. When, you know, you're scraping the barrel when it's the cheese in the Get Along oh Gang. <laughs> writing, 
bizarre snail-like characters. And now, actually, um, I actually, I was telling Hunter earlier, I'm actually write pony novels, but for a Scandinavian book club market, which is very different. So it's almost wow. like get along, well, not get along gang, it's a bit older, but because um, I also am very into horse riding, or was, and I had horses for the last couple, last few years. And um, somebody asked me, I met somebody through my sister actually, who is a publishing agent, but completely, you know, completely different for Charles Market. And she was looking, she actually needed to commission some books about riding in the English countryside because mm. Scandinavian kids seem to really love it. So I write this story. The first one I did was about social, who wouldn't have known because it's in Finnish. It's about horses and social media and pretending, pretending to have a horse through social media and what you could do <laughs> through Facebook. And then actually being found out, you suddenly get dumped with a horse, this girl does. And she has to learn to ride ludicrously quickly and it's all quite unrealistic, but it was a lot of fun. Um, and so I suppose I've always been interested, there's a long way around saying I've always been interested in storytelling, mm. storytelling, and I guess the cartoons were just a way of doing that, and mm. Marvel's a way of doing it's it. It's what you learn in comics in the yeah. end is how to deal with stories. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I used to write Beryl the Butch, Bitch for the Sunday Correspondent, and they needed a weekly strip, and I remember, yeah, I'd been on Friday, I said, on Monday, I think, I need an idea, I need, but you just mm. know you need an idea, and yeah. by Wednesday yeah. it'll be there, yeah. mm. just, you know, jot a few things down, it's, and people people look at your work for the the drawing style. A lot of people yeah. do. They, they're into the the actual drawing. You, me. Uh, what I'm into is the storytelling. The drawing yeah. is just what happens. It's how I tell the story. But I'm, I I've been doing it long enough now that I I, I have a facility for it. Um, I know how stories work and how comics. Yeah, work like a narrative story. arc, isn't yeah, there? Yeah. It's like the story of the hero. I've seen that before, but I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I did that with the, do that with the pony books, <laughs> and they just they just happen quite iteratively. You've set up a scenario, and you know these mm-hmm. characters are going to go and do something. Can't entirely mm-hmm. think you know where you're going to end up. And when you're writing a book, you do have to put pay, you know a chapter plan in, so you'd have to in theory know what's going to happen in all the chapters. Yeah. But actually, mm-hmm. it begins to. You just have an end point you know you're going to get to. Yeah. The yeah. fun point is writing the story. The fun yeah. point for me is writing it. After that, after it's written, it's just hard work. <laughs> I think, actually, Hunter, my stars are similar to that. In that yeah, they don't have that feel about yeah, them. Yeah, mine's more complex, but they're mm. very similar yeah. in, in, in yeah. The, 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 the way they're structured and yeah. everything. Yeah. Although I was very intrigued by that very different style, Hunter, you adopted for some of those album covers, which like is much more that, yeah. angular and wouldn't be recognised mm. as you. I didn't realise that, that you drew in that style yeah. as well. Yeah. How difficult was it kind of adopting that very different style of expression? At first it was tricky, um, partly as much as anything because of the band trying mm. to work mm. with these people. It was supposedly a democracy, but there was basically three of them telling everybody else what to do. Mm. And... Um, they didn't want comics. They didn't want cartoons. So the first stuff I was doing for them was like cartoons. And we came to a compromise where I was doing this angular style and sticking photos of their heads on it and things. Um, and that, uh, it was all right. It worked in, in some of the posters and things like this. But uh, it settled into this, which is quite icon- iconographic now, this thing. Mm. And there's loads of people have tattoos of the beat girl and, mm. you know... There's fanatics all over the world. Uh, I mean, I'm still getting commissions from people for, to, to draw the beat, draw the beat for me, you know, people in the States. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it, it's become something else that I do now. Mm. But it did take a while to, to sort it out. They wanted something that looked 60s-ish. Mm. Mm. 
which it doesn't really look 60s-ish at all, but that's what we came to in the end. And you were talking earlier about uh, 40 years, um, which jazz collective was it? I've forgotten. Oh, the Birmingham Jazz. Birmingham Jazz yeah. Collective. So, I mean, that in a way, it's not unlike, you know, the complete Maxillion, that it is a kind of career... Uh, I mean, obviously, you're hopefully going to go on for another 20, 30 years. But it kind of like, you know, a, a, a time to pause and look at, you know, a survey mm-hmm. over a number of years. I mean, how does that feel as a creator? You know, here is my body of work. I can now look at it over a period of time. Just at the moment, it's a real pain in the arse. <laughs> I'm trying to declutter the house. I've got 40, 45 years worth of books and comics and records and all the rest of it. And artwork. I've got a, a room full of artwork. And um, I hate looking through all that old stuff, to be honest. <laughs> There's some things I look at and make, they make me laugh, but looking through all these old drawings, all I can see is the mistakes. And I've got to figure out something to do with it. <laughs> you know, you can't just chuck it away. It's got to go somewhere, because we're, we're being forced out of the house. Yeah. Hmm? Cartoon museum. Well, no, I mean, the, the Cartoon Museum are just as pushed as I am for space. You know. And, I mean, on a similar note, uh, Julie, you were included recently in the Inking Woman yeah. exhibition and book. And again, to use an academic term, you've been sort of like recontextualised yeah. as part of a 150-year-plus mm. uh, kind of tradition of female cartoonists. I mean, how did you feel, you know, when they approached you and said, we're putting on this enormous survey, uh, you know, of your peers... That was great. It was good. It was nice to celebrate it and, mm. and look at it again, actually, and pull it out. Cause I haven't done so much recently, as I said. Um, yeah, been mainly writing, but um, yeah, I'm only want to get back into it. To be honest, it was oh, good. It was nice to see it all. It was nice to see it all again. Um, and also, yeah. I mean, we, we discussed this. Um, I'm an academic reading group about comics, and uh, suggested that the, the Inking Woman certainly, when you see it as this, um, you know, the fantastic book. It's kind of like the answer, the solution to a problem. That when people say, oh, what female yeah. comic artists are there? You go, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and what was interesting was the questionnaire we all had to fill in. I don't know whether you've, you've read the little blurbs, which, yes, it was very, very deep, you know, all about your motivations for doing it, all the politics involved. And I thought, I just enjoyed it. It was mm. just fun. It was just a laugh, you know. It was a way of telling stories. And I wouldn't put read into them too much at times. It was... No, it was it was fun at the end of the day. And the reason people make music, I suspect, the reason people draw, tell a story. Does anyone have any questions for Hunt or Julie? I have a question for you, Julie. Um, I found it really interesting. You said um, about sometimes you just need to have an idea yeah. by Wednesday, it's there. And you said that you can create the setting and establish yes. an endpoint, and then your characters yeah. get to that endpoint. So I was thinking, so in that way, do your characters kind of act out themselves? Do you know them so well that they just... Yes, you know, you know what they're going to do, but sometimes, even if you have a new... I mean, someone like Beryl Bitch, I would always know what she was going to do okay. after a while. I remember getting an idea of walking to the cash point. I can't remember what, what the finished strip was, but right. that's the great thing about ideas. They can come from anywhere. Yeah. And um, so you just sort of set up the character and have some thoughts about likes, dislikes, whatever, or yeah. kind of roughly who they are, but I think it could be fairly sketchy, and yeah. um, because they almost develop as they do things. Yeah. yeah. So, sometimes they do unexpected things. Yes, I mean, yeah. Different, but I'm interested in maybe if you're subconsciously just make them do something different than you 
Yes, and when I'm writing the pony books, you get to the point where so a cartoon's really often quite short. Well, the bell bitch some of the strips were the newspaper strips I'm thinking of, so you'd need an idea pretty quickly, pretty quick right. deadline. But with a longer strip or a, a novel, you're, it wends a bit, so you know you're going to want certain points. Well, I mean, with the pony books, they aren't very commercial, and it's very much end the, you end that chapter leaving the, the reader wanting more. So you think about what are they going to be the little milestones along the way. It's the same with the comic strip. What am I going to do at the end of that row? Yeah. It's going to make it interesting to go on to the next bit. Um, and just thinking about where the sort of, I don't know what you'd, you'd call them, sort of tipping points, the little milestones, the bits where... I guess this is what you're talking about when you say you just know how to write. Well, I would, if I wrote a comic strip or a novel, I'd start at the beginning, think about what I'm going to be at the end, and I'd pull out three or four points where something, things are going to change or move on, or, um, and then between them, there'd be... And then once you start writing, you sort of get... Diverted. So when I was writing the novels, particularly because it was more words than a comic strip, my agent said, "Don't try too hard." At first, I tried far too hard. I made it very rigid. And after I should, and, and I would actually sit. I was commuting into London at the time. I would sit on my laptop and I would just write, look out. And once there's also something about writing every day or just writing regularly, just putting words on paper. My husband's an art teacher, and he says my daughter is an art student. Just take a pencil for a walk. Just get something on paper. And I would just. I think I need to write a chapter. So just, just put something down. Even if it's crap, that's fine. It's better than a blank page. Yeah, it's you easier could... to change something than it yeah. is to come up with something brand new. Yeah. So you put anything down at all and you can change it. And I suppose things like working at Marvel or work those kind of environments, they're quite structured. So it just gives you some structure in terms of deadlines, what you need to deliver. So when you're working with that daily anyway, I think it's in some ways good discipline. I think I've been, tried to be totally freelance. Yeah, I sort of need a bit of discipline. Yeah. Sense? Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's nice to hear about you. Clarence. Um, a few years ago, I saw you talking about your um, biography on Dion, Dion Fortune. Dion Fortune, yeah. sorry about pronunciation. Um, and you just got me very excited about it. Is it finished? Is it coming? Up until recently, for about five years, I, I was working on a, a whole series of um, uh, the lives of the great occultists with Kevin Jackson, who's the writer that I work with. And, um, and the Dion Fortune thing was one of those. And mostly there were single-page things. Some of them went on for several pages. Dion Fortune was, I think, four or five pages, something over, over five months. Um, but where did you see about that then? You talked about it at Ladies Do Comics. Right, yeah. yeah. In Birmingham. You were there in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice at <laughs> all. <laughs> yeah, well, it was because it was Ladies Do Comics. Um, I did me talk, and then I thought, I'll tell you a story. So, and I chose Dion Fortune and just basically ran through it with the, with the, um, the slides. The story, as, it, as you saw it, it that's it. But we've got a hundred odd pages of these occultists, which yes. is a lot of work. It's also uh, Hunt. I, I didn't. I never realised that you did. We did the Scar Lady, and I was sort of thinking <laughs> of your use of work. The Beat Girl. Beat Girl. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thinking about you working across the musical genres, because I, I recently it came to the post, and I've forgotten. I, I 
um, supported it on Kickstarter, but the Golden Thread Project, which, oh, yes, was, the, right. which yeah. was sort of American and British folk songs, and mm-hmm. yours was Rocky mm-hmm. Goes a Courting, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, is that, have, you, have you worked with folk music as well? A lot, yeah. yes. Um, my first comics were little photocopied jobs, A5 size, and I did half a dozen of them. Number four was called Folk Comics with a PH, and it was it's really early work, juvenilia, I think they call it. <laughs> I wish I could draw with that sort of freshness now, you know. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I reworked folk songs. I love folk, folk music, always have done. Yeah. Um, Froggy went to courting in that book. That's another example of the censorship, not censorship, copyright problems. Okay. Is that because um, we were given lots of different versions of the songs to listen to but we were told not to use just verbatim the words because if they were taken from a record they could be copyrighted so the version of Froggy Went to Court and I was using was Bob Dylan's version yeah. and I've used some of his words but not all of them in order to get around that. That's true actually because none of them have all the no. lyrics mm. verbatim mm. I think I'll count about and it's never going to be happy for me again now after that <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Any other questions? Do you listen to music when you're... No, I don't. If I'm writing, it has to be silence. Mm. If I'm drawing, I find music very distracting. Um, So what I like Radio 4 and 4 Extra, you know, I like yap, 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 going on. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same, actually, yeah. I don't know how my kids can work with, like, the telly on or with social media on. It's like my daughter always has to have some kind of noise around and I can't do it. I need quiet. I hardly play any music at all these days. The only time I play music is in the car. And um, I only got a CD player in the car in the last couple of years, so <laughs> it was all cassettes. <laughs> um, but uh, at home, if I put an album on after five tracks, I've had enough. I'm getting old. <laughs> My husband's really into music, and actually that's been great because he just brings home great stuff, usually fairly obscure, but I don't know, loves jazz, loves... and that's great because so I have a constant soundtrack in the home, but half the time I don't know what it is, but it's great. Hmm. Um, I was just wondering, you said that um, you didn't used to be into jazz, and then you got into jazz and then was there a turning point? Because I'm not into jazz, but I'm into jazz. Yeah, yeah. what I realised <laughs> was I'd never actually listened to it. <laughs> okay. Is it like a set way to sit down? No, it's because there's a friend of mine who runs Birmingham Jazz, and um, I started going along to some of the gigs and just realised that I really like this. You know, I'm not so keen on record. Again, you see, I, I, I don't play many records, you see. I, I play some... But played live, I just love it. Is it Radio, Radio oh, wow. 3 do something on Saturday afternoon, early evening, record, jazz record request? I think it's record, so mm. you might like it. But that's one way of listening to an eclectic range of jazz. Mm. Often have it on, mm. it's quite nice. I think this is the second time somebody's said today, um, I can't listen to music when I work, mm. I can only have Radio 4 on. And I don't know, it, it surprised me both times because I always thought like music would be. Have, well, maybe have less of a narrative to it. Well, well, actually, I find classical music easier because I think it doesn't have words a lot of the time. Mm, and, yeah. and we have a lot of Radio 3 on in the house, which I never thought I would when I was younger. But actually, it's quite freeing because I don't know a lot of the music and it often doesn't have words. Um, so even the jazz stuff quite often doesn't have words. So actually, I find that 
easier to work to. Because mm. if, if I'm working to Radio 4, I start listening to what they're saying. Yeah. And then uh, I say, oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I do the same, but it doesn't stop me drawing, you see. I, you know, I just do it. and it, I know what I'm doing on the page because I've already thought of, written the ideas. Yeah. I know what's going on. I know what the pictures are going to look like. Like I said, it's just hard work. So after so. that, it's just kind of a, a mechanical process. I yeah. Suppose, yeah. You, uh, yeah. Oh, there's something about having a bit of background noise, isn't there? Which is why it's nice working in coffee shops, hmm. apart from the coffee. Just like I always like to be around, like being around people to do stuff or get ideas or whatever. I don't. Yeah. I get distracted at the slightest thing, and then I'm off, and, I, and then I have to walk back. I'm just <laughs> a terrible eavesdropper, but that's <laughs> where you get ideas. <laughs> and when you were drawing me. Yeah. And when you were drawing comics back in the day, was yeah, it silence bit, as yeah. well? Or and was any of that based on eavesdropping? Oh, yeah, yeah, quite often. Yes, <laughs> as I said, you get good ideas for eavesdropping. Bizarre. There used to be a really nice little comic book called Overheard in American Coffee Shops, oh, which was yes. a woman, and it's like this size. I've still got them both. Well, I've only got two. I don't know where they're anymore. Do we see them? Yeah, I don't know. I just love them. I just love the idea. Mm. Just it's all based I don't know on. Who it was. She was Graham Higgins' girlfriend for a good while. Oh, long. right. Yeah, a German, uh, she lived in Germany. I can't remember her name. Susan Catherine. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's it, it. Yeah. yes. I loved, I loved her stuff. Susan Catherine. Uh, I think it's called, it's something overheard in American coffee shops, but I don't know, well, there might be more to the title, but it's definitely got those words in. Were there any self-portraits in your work, disguised or otherwise? No, yeah, sometimes. No, actually, there's a fair few. There's a fair few when I think about it. Okay. Um, but they always change it. So my my kind of right is to take is to take things I observe and or think myself. So you might observe your own thoughts and change them. And you just sort of not not to so I can't be identified. I can you know um, just because it's more interesting just to tell the story really. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean quite a few of them to be honest. <laughs> quite a lot of them are autobiographical elements. Then other bits are complete fiction, <laughs> all that I ever heard. Mm. Well, there's the young singer. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> the one with the knife. Yeah. Now, it's, it's the only comic I've ever done about one of these bands. This was when I was um, in the teens, uh, still at school and just out of school. Um, this one was um, 1980. I'm the guitarist at the back. Huh. Um, you can tell which one I am on here. <laughs> <laughs> Rosie Finger, Dawn Tibbets, Rockin' Ron Collins, The Mighty Dog Walker, and Run the k- 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 Cartoons. <laughs> there we are. Do you have incense on the stage? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. The drummer used to have asthma and used to nearly die because of the thick curtains and, <laughs> and it all build up, you know. God, open the bad. curtains and all this incense would roll off the stage and we'd be there with all the paint on and the hall full of teddy boys. <laughs> we're lucky to get away with our lives sometimes. <laughs> Less of a rock, a rock and roll lifestyle at Marvel Comics UK. Yeah. <laughs> Hunt, Julie, thank you very much. Thank you. Anthologies featuring Julie Hollings, such as Modern Art, A Graphic Guide, and Outrageous Tales from the Old Testament, can be found second-hand in good bookshops and online auction sites. The Inking Woman, a look at 250 years of women cartoonists and comic artists in Britain, 
featuring the work of Julie Hollings and 249 of the other female artists who have worked in this country over the last 200 years, is available now from Myriad Editions. Hunt Emerson's website can be found at largecow.com, where you can find various books by the artist, including Hot Jazz, Calculus Cat, Baloke's Progress, Dante's Inferno, Lives of the Great Occultists, and many more. And these can be found alongside original artwork by the artist, such as spoof superhero comic book covers, pages from books such as Phenomenomics and Lives of the Great Occultists, and much more. You can find more info about Graphic Brighton by going to graphicbrighton.wordpress.com, where there are various other podcasts of Q&As recorded at the annual event. Last year's Graphic Brighton was cancelled like many other things due to Covid, but hope to be back later this year with events either side of the English Channel. The broadcast of this show on Resonance FM comes just before the Resonance Fortnight of fundraising, which takes place every year in February to help raise monies for such important costs as the maintenance of equipment, relocation of the studio aerial, and other integral parts of the running of the studio not covered by the funds received from the Arts Council. If you enjoy listening to such programmes as Panel Borders on Resonance FM, alongside the likes of K-Pop Journey, Late Lunch with Out to Lunch, Little Atoms, Make Your Own Damn Music, Out in South London, Pull the Plug, Records Comic Curious and Cracked, and much more, please go to resonancefm.com and click on the link marked Donate, and any amount that you can spare to help with the running costs of the station will be very gratefully received. Panel Borders was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous episodes of Panel Borders at www.panelborders.wordpress.com, and we'll be back on the first Wednesday in March in an episode looking at anthropomorphic comics including interviews with Richard Short, the author of Huawei Man Klaus, and Jason, the Norwegian cartoonist, behind such titles as Athos in America, Low Moon, and I Killed Adolf Hitler. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.